Welcome to episode 145 of the Winning Six podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee. Joining me as usual, we have Jordan Tresky. And along for the ride this time out, it's Ty Windish. Hello, Jordan. What Hello, f- Ty. What a, what a flattering way to introduce me. Along for the ride. I'm here. I'm latched onto the back of this bus, ready to go. <laughs> What is the term when you're on a skateboard? Is that skitching? When you get on like a... <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That sounds I've never, dirty. That's never sounds heard dirty. of skitching in my life. Yeah. I apologize. I don't want to do any skitching. not what skitching is. But... Oh, boy. Have you played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater? So did I, but I don't remember skitching. <laughs> We're best moving on from skitching, though. It uh, is skitching. Sky or sky. Oh, my God. Ski hitching or skate hitching, where you get on. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Guys, come on. Well, if you have happened to spend your day asking yourself, is it future or is it past? (laughs) We are here to help in confusing that matter a little bit further with the first of our books history podcast. I had to give Jordan a little trill there. We're lucky that Ty is along with us, so this isn't just a Twin Peaks podcast. Instead, <laughs> this is the first of what will be four, if I can count the number of weeks in a month correctly, history podcasts throughout the month, as many of you have probably seen by now on Behind the Book Pass, where all three of us write. We are currently in the midst of a really deep dive into the book's history. We'll go through all sorts of facets over the coming weeks, and that will extend here to the podcast. What we will do is we will have some teamed podcasts. Some will line up with, I guess, the weekly themes of what we're writing about. Others will be a little bit different. And that starts out with this week, which is a little bit different. For this podcast, our subject is going to be why have the books only won one championship? The easy answer to that is it's difficult to win a championship. And I mean, the books are going to book, so <laughs> we could stop there and wrap it up, but we won't. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at three teams or three kind of groupings specifically where you know the books would have had opportunities. They did have opportunities, and they weren't fully able to take advantage of them and get, say, a second or a third championship over the line. Um, very obviously, that will include the team of the first few years of the franchise of the early 70s. In essence, the same team that won the title in 71. 
It will also include the group that came in in the late 70s and carried on through for most of the 80s um, in what was the most consistent spell of success in books history. But again, never quite got there. and In fact, never even got to the finals, that group. And then what we'll also touch on is a much, much more short-lived spell of dicing with potential success, which was, of course, the 2000-2001 season and that team, which plummeted pretty rapidly thereafter. But what we'll do across all of those groupings is say, okay, what did they have? What stopped them from winning more championships? Because it's something that, I, I don't know, I'll speak for myself first, and then we'll we'll hear from both of you on I always find very apparent when, say, you spend any time dedicated to looking back on this stuff, like we're all doing on site at the moment. When you really dive back into the book's past, you genuinely find these really, really good to great teams. You find really incredible players, you know. Um, of all the franchises in the NBA, I think the books can be pretty proud of the group of former players they've had. There's a pretty illustrious group, and I think it's not a reach to say that there have been franchises who've gone on and won more championships with less collective talent over their history, which is kind of curious to think then, what is it that's held the books back a little bit? First of all, would both of you agree with that idea that considering the players and the teams they've had, even the success they've had over the years, the books have come up just a little bit short in terms of actually converting that into hardware? Yeah, I, I would probably say yes. Because anytime you have a, a player like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for, you know, it is a shorter stint, still six years, and he is, you know, one of the top players of all time in the history of the NBA. Uh, you could definitely say that, you know, they didn't reach a not lasting success because obviously they had hit success but they didn't have further uh honors or rings to kind of commemorate it all and put a nice little bow on it instead they have one you know historically great season one to kind of measure all great teams that's up there consistently and uh other than that i mean you know bad breaks kind of just falling short just in you know you take account with a 73 74 season like mixed up i might mixing up those numbers no you're right uh so yeah i i think if you kind of boil it down you it's you could easily just say that oh yeah they they have such a singular talent like kareem even though like i said before it's only six seasons or seven seasons to only have one ring you could deem that as something as you know kind of underachieving it i suppose but who knows I mean, I would say definitely. I mean, you can look at like the 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 most recent big three. That team, like you said, the peak was short lived, and there were a lot of other teams at the time that were good. The '80s teams. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it. It's it's more complicated. I think there's a lot of talent, and it stayed together for a decent amount of time in in one iteration or another. But I mean, like if you told general NBA fans, I think in 1971, right after the Bucks waltzed their way to the the, the team's only title ever, that 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 squad would only win one title. And I mean, somewhat you could say injury, but not necessarily always injury was the reason I think people would be shocked. I mean, they, they, it was easy for them. It was like, if these warriors never won another title, like this warriors team right now with the four all-stars, if they'd never won 
another title. I think it'd be that ridiculous because Warriors are more stacked than those Bucks were. They had four All-Stars. But, I mean, there was only 17 teams back then, and Kareem was in his second year. They just drafted Bob Dandridge, who was also in his second year. They just added Lucius Allen, who was only in his second year. The Big O was getting older, but he was still good. And, I mean, it was just such a center-driven league. And to have the best center plus other great players around him and not win anymore, it just, like, I just don't know if people would like, – people would be shocked. And I think really, like, looking at the years afterward, it's it's kind of inexplicable that they weren't a little better. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I know you say kind of NBA fans generally would have been surprised at that time. I think part of what's always interesting to me when we do this, and I guess it's part and parcel of just different generations of fans, and also, I guess, how kind of interested and dedicated fans are to the history of their franchise. But I think you can extend that further and say, like, there are a lot of books fans who, with, I guess, um, with the pains of recent years fresh in their memory, don't really think of the books as what they are as a franchise. They can't really associate with the books as being a franchise who've been remarkably successful throughout their history. Throughout what's still a relatively short history coming up into the 50th, 50th year. I mean, this is a, a franchise who, in spite of a pretty barren spell they've been going through, um, I think as we touched on before, essentially since they moved into the Bradley Center, um, things have not been so great. This is still a franchise that all time is over 500. Point five, full, 0. 0.510 winning percentage all time. Like yeah, this, so if they lost... No, if they, no, I mean, if they, if they went 2-80, and 80, they'd be 500. Like, they're basically a full regular season of only winning over 500. Right, it's, it, you're right. It's exactly 80 games above 500 and if you you imagine in the last 20 years just how much that number has taken a hit like uh, in writing about Kareem the other day like we talk about obviously Kareem as a singular talent but obviously there was a lot of really good players on his teams too and throughout his time at the books they were close to something like a 75 77 percent win rate these are really crazy numbers. They're numbers that you won't even come by very often in today's NBA. And so in that regard, it is interesting to look back on and say, what just hasn't quite translated? Where has it gone wrong? In the three different groups we're going to look at in this particular podcast, I think something that's interesting is you've got very defined and different teams. And you've also got sort of a look at how the game evolved and how those teams approached it. And I think there are elements of the books being ahead of their time in a lot of instances here and kind of laying the groundwork in the things they were doing for the next team to come along and kind of copy what they did and put it to greater use. Let's start out with that team from late 60s into the into the early 70s. Of course, this is the group that delivered the one and only championship in franchise history so far, notably as we mentioned, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the, the star man of that team and as the best player in the league throughout that time. I mean, he won three MVPs with the books. They had an advantage that, I mean, we're in a place now where we're all hoping Yanis can reach that point where you get that advantage again because it, it's very much like when 
the Cavs even might have a challenging summer at the end of the day, you're still going, well, they've got LeBron James, so they're probably still going to get to the finals. That's the kind of thing you can get out of just having a player of that caliber. And Kareem wasn't just the best player in the league at that time. This is the all-time scoring leader. This is one of the very best players of all time. To just kind of categorize that team as Kareem, though, is very unfair. The books had an excellent supporting cast with Oscar Robertson, even though he was coming to the tail end of his career. Um, he was there for most of that time. Bob Dandridge was there for pretty much all of that time. Obviously, Johnny Mack was still around. Uh, guys like Lucius Allen were really big contributors. The books had a really well-rounded roster, and they found a way of kind of meshing role players, being able to go deeper into their rotation, that wasn't necessarily characteristic of how the NBA operated at that time. Um, something that has been really apparent in doing a lot of reading on those teams in particular in the last few days, all the writing about that team at the time just kind of highlights just how revolutionary uh, Larry Costello and his coaching staff's work was with the team. Uh, like in 7071, the books were miles ahead of the rest of the league offensively, and they finished with the, the league's best defense as well. But there was this element of discipline and just being so well organized, so well drilled. Um, they were one of the first staffs, supposedly, that really took watching film seriously, breaking down their opponents. A lot of what we now take for granted as the, the approach to entering into any NBA game was kind of new at this time, and the, the books were out in front with it. So you're getting the whole package together, and everything looks kind of perfectly in place. You've got great ideas coming in from off the court. You've got great players on the court, and I think to, just to really put a label on it, you're talking about an all-time great team, one of the very greatest teams of all time. Possibly top five? That's not a stretch. I mean, that's, that is a group that is right up there across all NBA franchises. And yet, only one championship, only reached the finals twice. There is, okay, there is the obvious, if we're looking at the Kareem section of this, there's the obvious exception of 74-75, which was his last year with the team. They missed the playoffs. He missed much of the season through injury. And I don't think his head was necessarily in the game because... He had been angling for the trade and talks are going on behind the scenes throughout a good section of that season. So even if we want to rule that out, you've got five years previous, 40% of the time making the finals, twice losing in the division or conference finals. What is it that you can pinpoint that down to? Because the one thing that stands out for me, there were very good teams. For example, the Lakers team, they lost the conference finals to in 72 stacked with all-time greats, but maybe not necessarily the best versions of themselves. This was a window of opportunity where the expectation was there is a team who can come true and really take control of this, and the league really were expecting that to be the books. What is it that stopped them? My opinion from what I've been looking through so far, and obviously I didn't watch these games live, but it seems like one of the reoccurring the uh, sort of parts of my year-by-year year look at the team doing the 49 and 49 thing right now is that like Kareem is always exceptional, but there's always one thing, one weak link on the chain that, that falls apart. And obviously the exception was the 71 where they won the finals, but 
you look at 72, that Warriors team you're talking about. Oscar had a terrible series. He didn't even score 10 points per game. And Lucius Allen was pretty good, but you need more than three guys scoring, and it was Kareem, it was uh, Bobby D, and it was Lucius. Then the next year, 73, I believe they lost to the Warriors, the Rick Berry Warriors that year. And for some reason, and I've been trying to find out why, I haven't really yet, Bobby D wasn't very good in that series. He scored less than 14 points per game. And again, like the Warriors had a lot of like randomly good players, some in their primes, some not, and it ended up being too much because someone didn't come through. And then 74, Lucius Allen misses the whole postseason, and there's the weird sort of fact that the Celtics didn't double for the whole series, and then they start doubling in Game 7, and it works. And the guy that they're helping off of, I can't remember his name right now. It's like Cornell... Harvey Werner or something like that. Yeah, what? Cornell yeah. Werner. Yeah, he takes three shots all game and scores one point on a free throw. He can't score at all, and the Bucks lose. And it's just it's always something very odd happening. And not very odd, but I guess I don't, I don't know. It's like weird that you would think, you know, the team losing wouldn't be on one of the big three or the coaches or whatever. But typically, something like that would happen. And you know, Kareem is always over here, like at worst. 25 14 and 5 every series like kareem would never be like you know 15 and 10 like he was always putting up these crazy double doubles every single series something else around him would fall through and then like adam said i mean these weren't bad teams they were losing to it was the rick barry warriors who would win a title a few years later the lakers who are the lakers the celtics who are the celtics but uh it, it just seemed like like the bucks were good enough to beat them even though these teams were you know historic teams, quite literally, they were good enough, but something always went askew that sort of ruined them. And aside from the year he was hurt, it never really seemed like it would, like you could look at Kareem and say, why didn't you do more Kareem? Like you can't expect him to put up like 40, 20 every game, even though probably sometimes he did. It would always just be something else. Like someone else faltered a little bit and then the other team just did not do that, I guess. I think part of it is like these were, aside from Oscar who was old, these were young guys. It's like, was the same age as Kareem. They were in the same draft, same as Lucius Allen. And like just expecting two 24-year-olds to beat teams that often had guys in their early 30s who had been there before. I mean, you're talking like Wilt was their opponent in one of those series, a, a very seasoned Wilt. Jerry West, who'd been through it all at that point. Elgin uh, Baylor. Barry, Elgin Baylor. Gail, oh, Gail Goodrich was young then. But there was all these sorts of guys who had been around. Uh, John Havlicek was one of them that they, they, they lost in 74. And it's just like, it makes some sense that the Bucks, who were by and large, aside from Oscar, a very young team, would lose if it was close because they just, they hadn't, they'd been there before, but not as much as these guys had. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. They, you don't have that same, everything came together in that first season when Oscar comes to Milwaukee. There's, you know, this total synergy that comes comes into uh uh into existence that year and for whatever reason those same performances that they got that you know made as we have established the this one of these greatest of all time teams it just didn't translate into the playoffs for whatever reason for the next couple of seasons they're obviously great if you look at those records and obviously as ty and adam have said it's not like these performances, even though like an aging Oscar or Bobby Dandre is coming into his own. If you look at what they're doing, they're still very productive players. Uh, and they have depth considering what the league was at that time and the amount of teams, all this stuff that you have to consider that, you know, we don't really have to at this point in, uh, 
in today's day and age. It, those are great teams on, on their own, but for whatever reason, it just, as Ty said, like there was always this kind of weak, weak link that you can kind of not put it all on, but it, there was something lacking in the last, uh, you know, after the 70, 71 season that they just never got to that over the hump in that regard. So I don't, it's, it's tough to say. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they would just lose a bit of a punch and I think that really cost them. Cause like they were a defensive oriented team for a lot of the time. They, they played with a pretty slow pace, but like, I remember the, the Warriors series, I pulled up this stat. They won two games in the series and they were the only two where Bobby D scored 20 or more. Whenever he didn't score 20, they lost, you know, they lost a really potent scorer in Lucius Allen and they couldn't overcome the Celtics. I mean, that game seven strategy, maybe it never even gets to game seven if Lucius Allen is there. They don't have another potent scoring guard to take his place. And, like Johnny Mack, I feel like should have gotten some more minutes in some of these series series, uh, but that's a that's for another time maybe. Um, but it was always something like that, you know. Like the one time, like I talked about Dandridge, like Oscar started to kind of lose the scoring bit because he was just like, like this was something I I read when reading about one of these seasons. Like he was a big a big dude, a big stocky guard to continue to move around and play defense and be physical at age you know thirty three thirty four. I mean. Oscar had been playing forever, like since high school, very competitively, obviously. And it was just tough for him. And I think having Lucius Allen there helped a lot. And that, that 74 finals, man, if, if Lucius Allen was there, I think that's a very different series. Like that's one of, I think I'm going to write about him, very just underrated cog in, in the Bucks of that era is Lucius Allen. Yeah, but what I'm going to jump into here first is, I know 74 is the obvious one, and maybe we'll touch on 74 because – if we're, if we're doing a podcast, which is, you know, why do the Bucks only win one championship? And you've got this one other year where they made the finals and they lose in seven games. That's a very obvious point to go to. The thing is, this shouldn't really have been about kind of picking off, you know, this year here, that year there. Like when they, when they won in 71, I, it seems like all conventional wisdom at that time was, this is a dynasty. Like this is cream is unlike really anything else that the league has ever seen. He's, he's kind of as dominant as someone like Wilt, but a more evolved form. And with the likes of Wilt on their way out, it was like, okay, you know, things are, things are clearing for the books to really go on and take charge of this and to build something that lasts long-term. And for, from that perspective, for me, it's, it's 71, 72 that stands out as a really kind of, just a missed opportunity because it's one of those things where if you go and you defend and you follow up a title with a title, you know, everything changes, everything changes. You get that out of the way straight away. You've, you've retained, you've got more confidence than ever. Like we, we all know how things ultimately go with Kareem and with Kareem looking to move away. And his reasons were never basketball based. So there's a good chance that always would have stayed the same way. But I mean, if he'd won, say, four titles in five years or something when it comes to the moment where he's thinking, you know what, I'd like to get out of here pretty soon, does it cause him a second thought? We'll never know, but you, you can't rule it out. In 71-72, though, they beat the Warriors 4-1 in the conference semifinals before losing to the Lakers 4-2 in the conference finals. As we've already kind of briefly touched on, I mean, that Lakers team... If you list off the names, you go, okay, well, they lost to a Lakers team that had Will Chamberlain, uh, Elgin Baylor, Jerry West. The thing that's kind of 
that jumps out on that is that they were guys who at that point were in their mid-30s. They were all in either the last one to three seasons of their career. Like they were really there for the taking. And I know we could say, you know, the Bucks are a young team and maybe they, you know, the experience. The Bucks are a young team. They were also the NBA champions. I mean, they'd done it the year before. They'd gone through everyone. That, to me, is one which just feels notable. Um, obviously, capturing kind of key elements of the matchup all these years later is a challenge. But you would feel, for example, that's one where the books really could have had an edge. And when you're looking to see, well, why was this team not as dominant as they, they really should have been? It kind of comes down to okay, you could any team, any great team can lose a seven game series to another really, really good team, as they did to the Celtics in 74. But it's the kind of other steps along the way. I mean, the Warriors it was a really good Warriors team, they weren't as good as the Bucks, they really weren't. And they got the better of them in 73. And the Lakers, who got the better of them in 72, you know, it wasn't that Lakers team in its prime. And that to me is the thing that kind of jumps out rather than taking the young element and this kind of youth and inexperienced angle, um, at least from the playing point of view, something that's cropped up in almost everything I've seen and always from the one source, which is unsurprisingly Oscar Robertson, not like Oscar to have something to say, but there you go. Oscar made quite a big deal both at the time and years later, about how the franchise reacted and dealt with the success. And when I say he made quite a big deal out of it, he criticized it heavily and continues to do so anytime he's asked about it in interviews in recent years. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes that Oscar gave. And on the one hand, we could easily say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's Oscar. He has always that is been, Oscar. He has always been the slightly grumpy old man. We can expect these quotes. But at the same time, this does make a lot of sense, particularly when you're comparing the books to these other teams and franchises that they lost out to. And this first quote is from an interview he gave, I want to say, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, to Doug Russell of On Milwaukee where he said, at the time I came to Milwaukee, the books were learning. The books didn't know what to expect. They hadn't been in existence for very long, and to go out and win a championship so soon, I really think it took them by surprise. It was very, very welcomed by the entire community, though. The second quote, um, which is from an NBA.com history piece, undated but implied that it was a quote from not long after he retired, Oscar said, after the championship, they did something which was really foolish. They traded Greg Smith, Bob Boozer, and Dick Cunningham. You had people who really did not understand what a team concept means. You win a championship and make a trade of any key ball player, and it's the kiss of death. Obviously, the first quote is not nearly as directly <laughs> aggressive as the second, although I do feel like um, it really took them by surprise. That element of the first quote kind of speaks for itself. He's, he's definitely poking at something. Is there a possibility that as much as we can look at the matchups and think of the players and say, okay, well, the Bucs were a better team than that team. Why didn't they get 
why didn't they come out on top? That it could just come down to a variety of factors off the court even, being that this was also new to the book's front office, the book's ownership, that stop me if you've heard this one before or we'll hear it again later, they kind of got in their own way at times. Hmm. Is that something which could could have factored in? Do you take Oscar's word on that from what we can see from the external point of view and now with the benefit of hindsight? Do you buy into that or is that just Oscar kind of finding an excuse for him and his teammates not quite delivering on what their potential was? I mean, I can see like his his points, but I'd for someone who was brought into Milwaukee and won the only championship of his career via a trade to criticize the Bucks trading. And I mean, like if you look at their like the since this time, the Bucks trade record is quite maligned and rightfully so. But like before, they traded two Bobs, I think, for Flynn Robinson, Bob Love, and Bob somebody else. Bob Weiss, and then a. Ele- Bob Weiss, thank you. And then Electric Eye Flynn became the the key piece in the Oscar Robertson trade. So I like I I think they were kind of on a hot streak with trading, and I don't blame them for trying to continue that. I mean, they took some heat I checks think, though, right? Is really like that. That's kind of what you're setting up because they they had done a really good job of that to get them to championship team within like two years of entering the NBA, and then it was kind of okay. This works. Let's keep trading. Kind of, yeah. And I mean, listen, like, you can't necessarily fault them for not being complacent, though. And I think that is important. Like, I don't think it's necessarily wise to say we won a title. Let's just, like, we're good forever. We'll just keep this team together forever. Like, I, I can't blame them for trying to take a shot. I don't know a ton about the specific trade or trades he's talking about there. But, I mean, it's it's not like they went and traded, like, Bobby D right after they won or something like that. No, but the the most most often spoken about trade of those players is Greg Smith, who was seemingly Kareem's best friend on the team. He was basically the key chemistry guy within the locker room. And from that perspective, when you're a 66-win team who sweeps the bullets in the final to win the championship, to then go and trade a guy like that, I I personally do feel that is, you know, I don't think that's not being complacent. You know, 66 wins, that's pretty good. Sweeping in the finals, like, you're not just winning. You're not just scraping by and getting a title where you're like, okay, if if our rivals make improvements, we we could easily be left behind here. You were an all-time great, incredibly dominant team. And... I know it's very easy to kind of accredit a lot of that to Kareem and just to how much of a a generational even feels like it's underselling a talent Kareem was. But at the same time, there really could have been something more to just the whole thing that they managed to put together. And particularly because it was such such a rapid journey from the bottom to the top for them. You know, that's got to build a special kind of bond and chemistry among among teammates you're going from being this team that no one expects to be anything. Flip of a coin means you're lucky enough to get Kareem. You all work together, turn around very quickly and take it to the next level effectively overnight. I, I do feel if that was today, there'd be a real danger. Like I'm, 
I don't know who on the the Warriors because I mean the Warriors are about as good an example as we can get to this. But I don't know yeah. who on the Warriors we'd give as the example of the chemistry guy. Maybe uh, it would be Iggy, something Iggy, Iggy or Iggy, Sean Livingston, which are the kind of things they did this yeah. year. The Warriors just figured out a way with Kevin Durant's help to bring back those key guys because it wasn't yeah. just we're historically good. What does Iggy or Sean Livingston matter? Like we'll still be better than everyone. So like, well, let's stay historically good. These guys matter to our team and to our players. It is well, I think... entirely hindsight, but it, I, I can understand that perspective with anyone who is considered to be, you know, you're right. It's not like we're talking about key players in terms of production. Well, I mean, uh, they were like the, they were important. They were real rotation players. I think maybe they like, weren't in the bench guys. Just, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think one of them was a the starter. I think they could have gotten away with just trading Boozer, Boozer, Bob Boozer, because he was a decade older than pretty much the core. But like Dick Cunningham and Greg Smith were the same age as Kareem Allen and Dandridge. And I just think it's very strange that they felt the need to separate. Like they had a, like five plus guys who were all very young like 22 to 23 at the time. And I think it is kind of odd to have these guys mainly, and Oscar and, you know, Boozer, but he's more of a role player, to have those guys win a title and then go, oh, we have a, a group of 20-year-olds who just won 66 games and swept in the finals. Let's trade some of them. Like, that's an odd decision to me. Like, you could have kept everyone, and again, like the salary cap wasn't even a thing back then. Like, players all made peanuts. So, like, pretty much replace Oscar with Lucius and keep going? Like, it's a little weird that they didn't think that would be a good idea. And the, the Dick Cunningham one in particular. Dick Cunningham, they traded him to uh, to Houston. He spent one season there. And then they, they brought him back from Houston for three more years. So talk about admission of guilt. It's like, things don't go well in 71, 72. It's like, okay, we're bringing Dick Cunningham back. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be Beasley in 1819. Oh, Jordan. Or Spencer Hawks. Don't more on that. More on that later. JLB. Um, <laughs> but one one thing I just want to chime in on is like, how many times have we heard about like teams? It's not even necessarily these championship winning teams. There are teams that maybe they're on the cusp cusp of you know achieving something really great. That if they kind of make one move, that at the time they kind of want to bolster their bench or bolster their starting five, all this stuff. It kind of comes back to bite them because all these other factors that they obviously took an account but didn't weigh as much as you know production on the court perhaps and it kind of slowly dismantles what something is great i mean the kings teams of the early aughts with you know trading doug christie and that kind of slowly went downhill i mean lebron james making such a big deal about the the heat amnesty and mike miller um even though he's this kind of classified guy as being this really good locker room guy, even though he's all, he was dealing with injuries, all this stuff. I mean, there's a countless of examples of even the way LeBron, um, obviously there's the agency connection too, but I don't think he was jeoparding his own chances of winning a championship over it. The way he pushed for Tristan Thompson to get his deal and eventually get resigned. Yeah, by oh, the cap. Don't Another example. Get JR too. JR. Right. JR I mean, well. you could go on and on and it, it things that we just, aren't privy to at this and not even just this day and age, but back then seeing how the locker room is, you know, going on and all this stuff. And we know about like things kind of were papered over with all the, you know, things with Kareem, all the stuff that he was dealing with at the time too, that, you know, 
I, I don't think was as much public knowledge as uh, you know in hindsight. Um, and I've, obviously, a guy like Oscar and his personality you could definitely clash and you know butt heads with people and stuff like that. So to kind of, maybe who knows how much that goes in the long run in terms of you know performance on the court, but it certainly there was a shift in how you know for whatever reason trying to you know make moves that help the team in the long run it just it never came to fruition and i will say one last thing about the 70s run is that like one thing they could not do at all after the the kareem bobby d class which obviously is like maybe one of the draft best single team draft classes in history after that they could not draft players to save their lives like if you look at go through basketball reference and look at who was a rookie on like the 71 72 team like they're probably not there by 70 like guys like they wouldn't even last like through two years like they just could not draft and i mean you're talking about you know there's like 20 rounds back then you know you're not going to draft 20 productive players each year but they could not get on if you just look at it like they relied on the same guys throughout the almost the entire like run of that team and that's not a bad thing we just talked about consistency but like they could not find anyone else to come up and add more and i think like with oscar sort of aging out they really needed a fourth guy a fifth guy i mean oscar was still good but he started to, to his production slump so you have you know bobby d kareem of course and lucius allen provided a lot of points otherwise they didn't have like that fourth guy who could really come and put up a lot of points and really help out i mean johnny mack was there there were other role players like if they had drafted somebody like role player a lot might be different as well but they just could not to save their lives in that span which i really think contributed to the team slumping off before the uh the 80s run that brief period where they were not nearly as good um before we move on to that late 70s 80s team um i, I want to just briefly look at 74 uh this is i guess a lot of this comes from uh, i wrote a piece on this for history month last year and i'll I'll tweet it out again uh, from from the Behind the Book Pass account tomorrow, just so so you can check this out for a little bit more detail on that series. But one of the things that at the time I found fascinating and still looking back on, and you know, maybe says something more about just the the overall psyche of this team. Maybe this plays into as I mentioned earlier. You know, the difference between if you go and you kick on and you win again in 71 72 you follow it up you beat that lakers team and it changes everything forever the quotes that came out from various books players about that 74 final series are just mind-blowing and um, they won game six in a really dramatic overtime game um where a cream skyhook basically beat beat the buzzer to win it and it's just, I'll, I'll read through, we have quotes from uh, Johnny Mac, Kareem, and Bobby Dandridge. And when you think this was their... That's crazy. This is their mindset going into game seven of the finals. It's just it's nuts. Beyond belief. Um, Johnny Mac, we didn't have a lot of confidence. You had confidence, but you knew you were limping in there on hope to some degree. But yet, we still had Kareem... Mickey Davis had done a great job. Bobby Dandridge. Oscar was pulling his freight as best he could, and we took him to seven, and we were at home. We didn't see them dominating us. Again, that's heading into a home game seven with a championship on the line. Kareem said about that game seven, 
The last game, I know I was tired. I played two overtime games. It wasn't there for us to win. And as Bobby Dandridge described it, at the end of a series like that, you're just glad it's over. You know, <laughs> you're like, okay, it's over day one, and you're exhausted, and you know you laid everything out there. So let's just go ahead and move on to the summer. It takes you, once you regain your juice and you've rested, then you reflect back on the pain of losing the game. For me, Boston won. They were the better team for that seven-game series. Then it's over. Pretty incredible Bobby stuff. Bobby D single back then? I'm looking, I'm looking this up. When did Bobby D get married? He was really looking forward to the summer. He was, he was all in basketball on the summer. Reference. Let me get some basketball reference. I'm going to assume Bobby D was, was not married during that stretch because he sounded I mean, really excited. He was talking about regaining his juices. <laughs> not saying anything yeah. else. But whatever, whatever, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- those quotes really are incredible. <laughs> I mean, the Johnny Mac one really struck me. I think all three. I think it's there in all three. Like they are, they're three of your four most important players on that team, and they clearly didn't believe. And I mean, let's let's be honest. We haven't got an Oscar quote there. Oscar was hardly going to be <laughs> the optimist among them. <laughs> so after winning in the Boston Garden in such dramatic fashion to give yourself one home game to win a championship. And that's the way they all felt. And that's the way they spoke going into it, just coming out. It's really bizarre. I, I just don't know. That's like, it's an, the ultimate crisis of confidence. And I guess that's the counter argument to hypotheticals of, oh, well, if Kareem had stayed longer, you know, maybe that team had kind of run its course in terms of, being around each other, hearing the same things, like it, that does feel like a natural falling off point. And when we talk about not just them losing that game seven, but the fact they missed the playoffs the next year, not at all surprising after hearing those comments. So to me, that's something which uh, I left to the end because I didn't want to drag us all down too early on in that section, considering how great that team was, but kind of a pretty damning indictment of where they ended up which is strange that, because again when i say where they ended up i'm talking about they ended up in a game seven of the finals and that's where they were at mentally one outdated plug that i would like to make that i just thought of uh i should have said it earlier when time was talking about the draft history it just goes to show you how altering it would have been for this franchise in that you know in that time had Dr. J come to Milwaukee, which I wrote about the whole saga that was going on with not even just the Bucks, it was with the Atlanta Hawks, the Virginia Squires, like it's this like embroiled, like it's very crazy. And like some of the incidents that are going back and forth, it, it was not to use this cliche, but when you're reading all this stuff, it's like the, it truly is the Wild West of the NBA where these like rules and all these like. <laughs> these mechanisms that are they're they're trying to get one player uh and all the stuff that came along with it but anyway um it just no that's a great that's a great point and I'll, i'll actually i'll tweet that one out tomorrow as well and for those who don't already know the 1972 draft the books drafted julius irving all sorts of contract disputes meant that didn't quite pan out you can read jordan's piece from last year on it to get the full detail but yeah, if, if in 1972 the books had had a Dr. J, I mean, it's game over. 
not only is it game over for the few years that you know Kareem was there, Kareem could still have decided to leave, and you were still in position where you've got a legitimate franchise player, one of the league's very best stars, and you could just keep going and rebuild again comfortably without kind of missing a beat. It's, I, I think it's easily the greatest what if in franchise history. I think you can go into oh, yeah. you know what if what if Kareem stayed longer. I mean. They actually drafted him. <laughs> he yeah. was the player they selected in the draft. And, you know, things that ended up being out of their control stopped them from ever playing for them. And it's I not guess, even another well, thing, too. Like, it, there's no analog for this in this in this day and age. Where mm-hmm. if it, like, I'm trying to think, Steve Francis, this is a terrible example, but, like, a guy who doesn't want to go play for the then Vancouver Grizzlies. That they still got compensation out of that. The Bucks got nothing out of it. They they lost Julius Irving and his. I mean, they still drafted him, but they never gained him. And they never played a minute for them. The, they the only way that happens now, Jordan, is if say next year Luca Luca Doncic goes first or second overall and just decides, no, I'm never coming over. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, you that's hope like you're like, only... I'm never coming over. That's the only way you can have that situation, basically now. Yeah. For sure, but but the draft rights don't expire, do they? No. I so at least that. like Luka Doncic like couldn't be drafted and then come play for a different team. Oh yeah, of course, and and also you would hold his rights as a trade asset. I mean, you could you could yeah. always dangle. Oh well, he might want to come over next year uh, to teams around the league and kind of get something done. But even at or that, even that if, is, like, that's still the closest you get with that. Like there is. Jordan's right. There is no real parallel for, you know, a guy just, yeah, I'm not coming. Not only am I not coming, I'll be, as a very convenient seg for us here, I will be beating your next great team year after year after year, uh, which is what ultimately happened with Dr. J. Let's move it on to the late 70s. I'm really into the 80s. And the 80s is when the next kind of, the next iteration of, I guess what could be described as a great books team took shape. No finals appearances, which in itself is a disappointment. Best that these books teams ever did was the conference finals. They reached the conference finals on three occasions. They reached the conference semifinals on seven occasions. If we go from 1978 onwards for so for a decade, seven of those years, they were at least in the conference semifinals. To reach it a record year by year. Um, so we'll start with 79-80, 49 wins, 80-81, 60 wins, 81-82, 55 wins, 82-83, 51 wins, 83-84, 50 wins, 84-85, 59 wins, 85-86, 57 wins, 86-87, 50 wins, 87-88, 42 wins, 88-89, 49 wins. 89, 90, 44 wins. We've kind of transitioned over into a different team there, but just to go through an entire decade where the worst season was 42 wins, a la the season that we all took great joy in the books having last year, was the worst (laughs) season in that entire decade. It was one of only three seasons where they dipped below 50 wins. Um, There was only a single 60-win season in there, but hey, 59 win, 57 win seasons aren't bad as a consolation. I've said it a lot of different times, and I still kind of feel like sticking with it. 
this was the this was the greatest team in books history. They didn't have the player that was Kareem there to really tip this over the edge. And I, I think we'll probably get on to it, but that's ultimately the thing that maybe cost them more than anything. But as a unit, as a group, that this was a team really ran deep, really ran deep into the rotation, which again was still pretty unusual at that time. But I mean, the kind of talent that these books teams had was unusual, is unusual by today's standard. You know, to have a team playing at that level whose roster was quite as deep as, as some of those books teams, that just wasn't the norm. Uh, pretty unique group. What would you put as, first off, your kind of gut reaction reason? for why this team never got over the line, never won a championship, never even got to the finals. This is, I think, like the harder one because like you said, there was so much longevity. But, I think it's uh, the easier one. Do you think it's the, what, what, just the competition? Exactly. I, I, don't, I think where we, where we talk about the 70s team, I think we're more talking about how that team and how the organization may have gotten their own way or just didn't get it done. I feel... As great as this team was, they just didn't get a break. Put them in any other era. Put them 10 years later. You know, they could have, early part of the 90s, they could have been really competitive. Mid-2000s. Mid-2000s, absolutely. I, I think it's it's one of those where you just, you kind of look at it and you're like, they just came up with the, or you know, even I'm saying that, Switch conferences, you know, switch conferences yeah. at that time, yeah. and that would have solved it. In the and, other one, they were in the other one for a long time. They were right. in the West in the seventies for some they reason. Only, they only shifted from West to East in nineteen seventy nine eighty was their last season in the West. Oh. So they only became an oh. Eastern Conference team in the eighties, and then for the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years, they lost to one of the Celtics or seventy sixers in the playoffs yeah and just for anyone who's like a little confused at that who doesn't maybe know as much about the history saying well why would you want them in the same you know conference as the lakers who obviously in the 80s were quite good partially because of kareem also magic johnson you may may have heard of him um the east also had a historically great franchise active with a historically great franchise player larry bird and the celtics were there but also you have dr j's sixers and to a lesser extent, but they also beat the Bucks at least once in that run. Dominique Wilkins Hawks. Like plus the Pistons were very good back then as well. Like it's ridiculous how many Eastern Conference teams, if not peaked, were at one of their peaks during this run in the early eighties ish. Yeah, and I mean okay, there were great, great Lakers teams. That's obvious. Everyone knows about those great Lakers teams. I mean, the books could well have come up against Kareem again. It wasn't as if it was an easy out, but I think the point kind of with the Western Conference is it was a one it was a one team conference for that decade. Only once in the eighties, um apologies, only twice in the eighties did a team who weren't the Lakers get to the finals. That was the Houston Rockets in eighty one and eighty six, where over in the East, up until the Pistons got there three straight years, eighty eight, eighty nine and ninety. It was either the Celtics or 76ers throughout the decade. Um, 76ers getting there three times and the rest of them going to the Celtics. So 
there was a really kind of there was a more competitive spread in the east i mean if you're in the west it wasn't going to be easy to get past that lakers team but it wasn't like you know if you beat the lakers there was necessarily another juggernaut waiting for you which i guess the examples are say for example in in 83 the books beat the celtics swept the celtics in the conference semifinals and then lost 4-1 to the sixers in the conference finals was that the am i mistaken in saying that's the only bird team that got swept and before the is that wrong um it was, it's a now, rare thing it was a rare thing. Right to me. that uh, bill fitch was also the coach and i believe he got fired after that season that's correct that is definitely correct um but yeah i believe that was the only bird team to get swept and i mean that was i mean you're not talking about any old team that was bird parish McHale, um nate archibald danny ainge that was a celtics team you know that wasn't just kind of any group they swept that team and what was the reward oh just avoiding this week against the 76ers and there are kind of there are a couple of instances of that they beat the sixers in a really hard fought seven game series in 86 they get swept to the celtics in the conference finals uh, they, they beat the Sixers at five games in 87. They lose in seven games to the Celtics in the conference semifinals. But that switch of the conferences really just meant if it wasn't one, it was always the other. And I, I know that's that's a thing that a lot of the players on that team, Marcus Johnson regularly talks about that. And um, I remember when, when we did an interview with him a couple of years ago, he kind of, the way he spoke about that was kind of very apologetic and in a, a sort of strange way of, you know, we could never get past the Sixers or the Celtics, and everyone knows that. Kind of as if they've all had to come to terms with it, but that must be a rough deal, because they were special, special books teams. Um, just one note on the Celtics. After that sweep at the hands of the Bucks, they went to the finals four straight times and won two of them. That's how good that team was. Um, Bird did get swept in 1989 in a really bad year for the Celtics when they were 42 and 40, but it was his ninth year in the league. And uh, oh, I'm sorry, he wasn't healthy. He only played six games that year. So never mind. Yeah, it was pretty much the only time Larry Bird got swept when he actually was at full strength. So that was how good the Bucks were, and that was how good the other teams were. That they swept a team that then went to four straight. Is so like that's ridiculous. And I guess to kind of put the middle part of that decade into context too. So say in, in 83, lost to the Sixers in the conference finals. That season, Sidney Moncrief, Defensive Player of the Year, Don Nelson, Coach of the Year. In 84, the following year, lost to the Celtics in the conference finals. Sid is again the Defensive Player of the Year. And then the following year, 84-85, they lost to the Sixers in the conference semifinals. Don Nelson was again the Coach of the Year. Like, it's just really incredible how they didn't catch a break. Well, what I want to come to as the, my real question for that, for that group. So we've just talked about a team in the 70s where, you know, maybe those trades they made after winning the championship were really damaging to them long term. And they... They took something away that they weren't even necessarily sure was there. There's just something they lost with those trades of guys who maybe seemed non-essential at the time. 
this group stayed together mostly throughout throughout the entire decade. Um, you did have some comings and goings, but I think I guess the thing that's worth saying is they they always did a very good job of kind of balancing out. So say for example, uh, Marcus Johnson ended up in LA with the Clippers in the 84-85 season. That was a big loss, but then they kind of found their balance on that team by bringing in... Uh, actually, no. Apologies, I'm wrong. Bob Lanier was already there. So second, the second half of the, the decade was a little bit different, which is why towards the end well, of it, it did start to that, tail off. Sid was still a through line, though, and all that. Yes, well, Sid is a true line up until... He's bizarrely traded to the, the Hawks. That whole thing, just him not spending his whole career with the books, is just a weird thing. Uh, it happened with lots of players playing. at that time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, up until that point, Sid was the true line. The, the Marcus trade did bring in a lot of good players. It was Marcus, yeah. Harvey Catchings, and Junior Bridgman for TC, Greg, Craig Hodges, and Ricky Pierce. So that pretty much catapulted them into the second half of the decade. Yeah, and even although I guess some parts of that were were kind of really kicking in a latter part of the decade, like I mean, Cummings was obviously the main catalyst alongside Moncrief for keeping that up as it went along. So yeah, they did they did recoup in the in the Marcus Johnson trade to keep things going. Is this group though overall? Is this one where like when you look at it compared to those teams, they were coming up against all time greats in Larry Bird, in Dr. J. And that's just naming one player from each team when we could name multiple. These were the guys they, they were failing to get past. When you look back at it now, it's kind of, you know, where was the one really bold trade that got you that something extra to get them over the edge? Because this was a team of really good to great players. And I mean, probably the deepest of all of those teams. Yet, this is kind of, this is like the 60-win Hawks, if you want to put it in a modern kind of perspective. This was very much, a Nelly Ball was very much kind of played this way of, it was the team concept at a time when, I guess, the league was even less team-oriented than it is now. The Bucks were trying to do something very different, and having just hit that wall of coming up against these incredible superstar-led teams. You just wonder, is there someone that little bit better? Someone who could bring that little bit extra? Someone who paired with Moncrief, paired with Marcus Johnson, or paired with Terry Cummings later, could just get you there? Do you think that is something that, looking back on it, they were always going to struggle? Just They needed to be perfect to be one of those superstar-driven teams where if they just had a little bit extra, maybe that extra gear gets them past. I mean, I always look back at the fateful Kent Benson draft where the Bucks had the first overall pick, I believe, in 77, I think it was, and they traded Sven Nader for the third overall pick and took Kent Benson first and Marcus Johnson third. Uh, Kent Benson, not good. They could have just taken Marcus first and kept Sven Nader. And you can look at it and say, well, they ended up trading Benson for Bob Lanier, who was very good for them. I mean, Sven Nader was arguably better. I mean, I think he got hurt later on in his career. 
but in the first year of Lanier on the Bucks, Sven was a 15 and 12 player. And, you know, who knows what goes differently if he's a Buck instead of whatever team he was on at the time. But, like, adding a guy who was a 15 and 12 center to a team where Lanier was like a 12 and 6 guy. And obviously, Lanier added a lot. He's great defensively, really at the tail, tail end of his career. Yeah, I, I think Lanier was the Oscar Robertson trade. I think that's what they tried to replicate with that. He was a guy who was, I mean, <laughs> Like there is really strong parallels, I guess, in terms of the way uh, Oscar had been in Cincinnati and the legacy that Lanier had already carved out for himself with the Pistons. I mean, he's a legend in Detroit still and was an incredible player for those Pistons. Tail of his career, though, it was kind of like they felt, you know, a trade like that would get them over again, where in fact they, it might have been the Kareem they were missing, the first option rather than the second or third option. And that's just still the fact that in the team there are four retired numbers from players on that team and none of them are Marcus Johnson is still ridiculous to me. Like this is not a drum I'm going to stop beating anytime soon. Like, no, it's not. And I, I think that has to have been politics at some point, which now makes us say, well, I mean, how could he be any more in the good graces of the franchise now? Yeah, well, you think what more does the be... guy need to do? I had a well, thought I mean... about this earlier. I had a thought about this earlier today. I wrote about Marcus Johnson today. Why not announce it that you're going to do it at the night at the Mecca? Well, the problem is, what do you do with Delhi? Does Delhi switch his number, or they do look like you Delhi, can? You're Delhi allowed can to switch his number. Delhi. Well, can the thing is, like you, you're allowed to like use a retired number. Like it's happened. Like Lamarcus is wearing a yeah, retired. Yeah, Delhi's not. Mix, Delhi's not wearing it, right? If they're retiring it, I'm sorry, Delhi. I was going to say fans, but fan. Um, Oh, no, there'll be some. I, I like Delhi, but Marcus Johnson's number should be retired. And if the books decide to do that tomorrow, Delhi can go and wear number nine. Didn't he wear number nine in Cleveland at one point? Yes, he, yeah, yeah, he, he has done a jersey number change. There is yeah. no number nine at the moment yeah, for the books, right? Number nine. It's... Jared Dudley was the I, last I one. Know. Was Jared Dudley nine? Beasley wore it last, last oh, year. That's right. So there you go. De- switch them now. Do it now. Tell Delhi. <laughs> Get over it. You're number nine now because Marcus Jersey is going to... I just think I, I had thought of that earlier and I thought I was a genius. I thought I'd cracked it. And then just as I was to say it, I realized, well, he can't exactly raise his jersey to the roof of the Mecca. That wouldn't work. Uh, but <laughs> a game I mean, in could, the Mecca... do both. A game in the Mecca against the Celtics. It's like, that's, that's your opportunity. You've at least got to announce it then. Doing all this... Someone's jersey's got to be retired this year, right? Well, they probably they didn't. Well, they didn't use the the like. I could see maybe if they used like the Marcus era jerseys, but they're going to be wearing the the seven the early seventies jerseys. Matter. The, the mecha know. element of it. It's like playing the. I Celtics guess yeah. Okay, you know. Um, yeah. That was just, just, just an idea. I don't care how they do it. They could do it whatever way they want. They can do it like uh, they can announce it. Jason Kidd can say it after a game on a Thursday night in Indiana, if he wants. I don't care how they announce it, how they plan to do it. They just need to get it done because this is a guy who, in my opinion, is probably the third best player in franchise history. And yet the books have retired no end to jerseys. And his isn't hanging from the raft. Like I'm saying, like and he's now back, on this he's team. now back working for you and doing a really great job. And he still has to sit there and look up every night and be like, oh, yeah, it's still not up there. 
45-ish percent of this team's jerseys are retired. Sidney Moncrief, Junior Bridgman, Bob Lanier, and Brian Winters. Brian Winters! I don't know, but I don't want to do that because Brian Winters was a very good player with the team for a long time. shout out Brian Winters. Shout out Brian Winters. No, I'm not saying Brian Winters isn't deserving of tie. I think that's the thing. It's just... I'm not either, but I'm just... There's no no need to justify his case. Everything speaks for itself. It's like, we shouldn't have to be in this spot. We shouldn't, but I'm I'm not I'm not saying Brian Winners is or isn't deserving. I'm just saying like if the if Brian Winners and Bob Lanier and Junior Bridgman are retired, then Marcus should certainly be retired because he carried their team to sixty wins that year. That's all I'm saying. Shout out all those players. I have great respect for you. Junior Bridgman, fantastic businessman, great sixth man. Sydney, great player. Literally they invented DPOY for you. That's incredible. Marcus's number should be retired. I, I also historical wanna, players. want to include uh, Sidney Moncrief should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Oh, that's a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. Is yeah. he not? Is he not? No, he's not. not. He's, the most, he's the most egregious snub every year. He's not. He's that's not. terrible. The uh, selection committee has clearly not seen... <laughs> Jordan, ever... keep that under wraps. That's coming later <laughs> this month. Um, have they ever talked that's to gonna be, Michael that's Jordan? That's going to be censored it? out, everyone. You're going to hear censored there. You're not going to hear what Jordan said because we've got a surprise coming about. later this month. Sorry, Ty. Uh, I think I figured it out. It, like, that's fine. Just ask Michael Jordan about Sidney Moncrief, and that's all you need to know. I'll never I, forget reading those quotes for the first time. He's like the only guy Jordan will talk about in that way, kind of in in that defensive sense. I haven't. I've never read a Jordan. Yes, I do. I do usually talk about him in that in that sense. <laughs> the, other, the other Jordan of the air that, that's ridiculous though that's ridiculous so Marcus <laughs> yeah, is the air is and I, I think the other thing like with Moncrief not being in there is it's just when you just compare with the guards right look at the as you mentioned that award comes in he wins it first two years okay look at the history since and let's pick out all the guards that's egregious you googling? That's egregious I'm googling, googling. No, I'm not. I'm not googling. I know. I thought we were just having a like a sovereign <laughs> moment. Of, it all in. A sovereign moment of silence oh, and agreement I was, over it. I was googling. Okay, well, Ty's on top of it. So with Ty, with Ty sees it now, he can be even more upset. Oh, it's, they, they really lay it out badly. It's just pictures, and you have to hover over them to see who's in it. No, no. If you, anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm lost. You got referees in here. The only, like, the only other the guards. So I, I'll, I'll do it for you as soon as you couldn't navigate that one yourself. Uh, Alvin Robertson. Later a book. Well-deserved for his defensive prowess. Uh, Michael Jordan. Gary Payton. The original. That's it. No guard has ever won it twice outside of Moncrief. Oh, you're never... talking about DPOY. I thought you were talking. I thought you were talking about in the hall. I thought you were talking about all the guards know. in the hall of fame. Oh. That would like, be that's a, a long, long list. Be all the guards, Ty. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Will we move on to anyway. what will be a briefer one, but our our last stop on why have the books only won one championship? I think it's I think it's the Jordan time because I know Jordan's very passionate about this team. Mm. Let's move it on to the current century. How about that? Um. <laughs> the last time the Bucks really did something <laughs> good. <laughs> 2001 season when the George Carl coach team, remember the name kids, we'll be talking about it again in a second. 
God. Found their way to the conference finals before losing in... We don't need to go in as rabbit hole. Well, maybe another week, Jordan. Uh, but controversial fashion to the Philadelphia 76ers in seven games. I know there are people who are people who are listening who are going to be just shouting, saying, why have the Bucks only won one championship? It's because of the refs. It's because of... Uh, Matt Geiger. David Stern. It's, I, when I say people, I mean, I know one specific person who'd definitely say that. Um, he know he knows who he is, but really the bigger thing is this is a team that came into that season having a loss in the first round of the playoffs two years running. The year after they missed the playoffs, before having two more first round losses, they were so so close to the finals, and they were the ultimate one season wonder. What is the reason this group? I mean, you're not going to have to reach very far for Jordan. But what is the reason this group was the one-season wonder? Why could they not build beyond this? Why could they not get over the line? At a time when, okay, we'll say, um, good Lakers team, but again, compared to, say, compared to what the last team we talked about, the 80s books teams had to deal with, this wasn't the worst path to the finals and maybe even to a championship that this group would have had to navigate. There's one specific name that comes to mind, but I won't uh, speak ill of of the dead. Anyway, um, I don't know. It's one of these things where this kind of, I guess if you want to kind of draw parallels to this, you know, Oscar Robertson or I guess, in a playoff sense, it's a more uh, lower category, I guess. But Sam Cassell, the addition of Sam Cassell really brought everything together where these pieces just kind of gelled together. And obviously George Carl adding him early, I think that same season, but Sam Cassell was hurt. I can't, I'm, I might be mixing that up seasons. Um, it all came to fruition in the 2000 season, then obviously 2000, 2001 season. And it all fell like a ton of bricks. I mean, the next season, they were a good team. They were like, I want to say, if they weren't the one seed, they were really high up there at like in January. And it just fell for a variety of reasons where team well, chemistry was out of whack and all that stuff. Yeah. It's just, it's, I mean, you're talking <sighs> about a team put together by Ernie Gronfeld run by George Carl. <laughs> and we're really going to sit here and I, I wonder what went wrong. I think we can. Well, it's, it's, out. it's not just, also, they, it's, they were, and they were bad at defense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's one of these things where you could look at, bring on like Anthony Mason thinking he's the final piece of the puzzle where they have this really balanced team. Um, and I think they also moved on from Scott Williams at that time and Irvin Johnson, who I'm forgetting who was it Ray Allen. It was either Ray Allen or big Doug in a couple of years after in an interview that said like people overlooked how big those losses were again, talking about like Greg Smith, uh, everything comes back together. Um, and obviously as Ty mentioned, having Ernie Grunfeld and George Carl, who logging so many stops and obviously, Furious George as he uh, beautifully written in this book. I mean, it's all recipe for disaster that 
you know, and everything just came undone. And it, it makes sense, like looking back on it, if if you're experiencing that season, and my little fragile 10, 10 year old brain couldn't really like <laughs> handle, like, why is everything going wrong? And then you're just like, oh, yeah, like, you see those elements mixed together and this pot and everything goes to crap, as they say. So, yeah, it, it makes a ton of sense why everything just uh, fell like a ton of bricks, as they said. So here's a can I can I pose a question in the middle of this? Sure. How much different would this era be if you had like the the coaching and general managers of like the earlier Bucks eras that were so good? Like I feel like one of the common threads both like Larry Costello and in Don Nelson is like these like were very like they were savants. And then you have George Carl who is not known for bringing harmony in unity in uh, his coaching style. Yeah, I think I think Savants is the, the wrong way to necessarily describe the other two and not like George Carl teams play very good offensive basketball. I mean that's for a little while. For a little while. Yeah, on, on a lot of them it runs out, but then like that has also it's unfair to just solely pin that on him. That has also been a byproduct of the teams that he's generally coached. I mean he hasn't yeah. hasn't necessarily always had the teams where your guaranteed sustainability on either end of the floor. But look, a staple of a George Carroll coach team is having this really good offense. He had that. The other coaches that you mentioned, Larry Costello, Don Nelson, uh, I guess even a guy like Del Harris, who was... Del um, Harris should be in there, yeah. Del Harris was successful. He didn't quite get to the levels the other two did, but, I mean, he was a key, key, key part of Don Nelson's staff and of the the brand of basketball that the books developed through the 80s and even into the early 90s, those guys all had very kind of strict and regimented approaches to what they wanted to do, to how they were going to do it. But it very simply came down to the players actually liked them still at the end of the day. They were able to make their players understand why this very specific approach to doing things is what's going to make us the best possible team we can be. And, I mean, George Carl is a Hall of Fame coach. He's one of the best coaches of all time. His, I mean, his win, win record stands for itself, and yet his biggest downfall is always going to be that he just rubs players up the wrong way. Well, especially star players. I mean, from Carmelo to Ray Allen to, I believe, Sean Kemp, which he wrote about in Furious George at length. Boogie Cousins is a great example. Like you can pretty much look to anywhere he was for an extended period of time, and some star player was either traded or and it's funny how aligned because of that. It's funny how in Denver when he went to one coach of the year and had that freak season. Um, one of the, I mean, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of that Nuggets team he had was they had no star, <laughs> and it's it's one of the kind of most perfectly George Carl seasons, and. That was because the group had no star player. Yeah, it's the something about George Carl and like fearing players being more powerful than him. I think is a very real thing that would happen. And listen, like it just reminds me of when Larry Costello went to Kareem and was like, "Listen, like I'll fire myself, my guy, if we get to keep you." Like, 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 uh, who was the GM? Wayne Embry. Like, we'll leave. Like, we will bring in a new front office for you. And he's like, "No, nah, that's cool." Like, I, I just don't think George Carl would do that. No, he absolutely wouldn't. To me, <laughs> to me, George Carl is the epitome of the American sports coach. Which, if you'll bear with me on this, Ouch. Ouch. no, if you'll bear with me on this, because I think this is kind of 
there's the cult of the coach that really comes across in football more than anything else. But this idea that the coach is the most important person and everything is about the coach. And even like that is still something that's very apparent. If you're not coming from a traditional American sports background, you're watching NBA games. Or even if you are like, like I'm sure both of you have watched some and many people listening have watched some, uh, some Euro baskets so far this summer, or you've watched, even if it's not this summer, you've watched the Olympics in previous years, you've watched FIBA basketball. And as much as we talk about kind of, oh, how to reduce timeouts, help the flow of the game and everything. Oh, God. They're also it's more so exciting because so beautiful. you let the players, you know, the people who are actually incredibly skilled, you let them make the decisions and find a way to score, find a way to win. And what I think the, I guess it is the, the football approach, the American football approach is that that is a sport that is micromanaged. Like you're going play by play. You're going offense versus defense. There isn't a flow to it. So to begin with, the coach has to have a lot of control. I don't know at what point or if that's just what a coach is perceived to be. And so it's spilled over, but there is a spillover of that into the NBA. And there has been a very mixed track record of success for guys who go that route. And that's even now you could look at that and say, I mean, Steve Kerr is probably the anti, you know, total control coach. Yeah. You know, he's, he's going to let his players and he's going to let his staff also shape what they're doing. Where then pop is probably more traditional cult of the coach, but that works out too. I think Carl is very much, very much on that traditional American coach. I am the franchise. I am the team. And what I do will determine whether we win or lose. Just the difference is that he wasn't able to influence players in the way that, say, a Phil Jackson was. Or he wasn't able to pick his moments but when his players needed tough love like Pop does. They're the differences. George Carl just <laughs> he's just like on in that mode at all times. That's what that's what all accounts that have come from his players at various teams seem to suggest. And yeah, it really I, I think the strangest part for me, and it's funny, this is the team's closest. It's probably the one that's still I I've struggled to grasp. I feel like I've a much better grasp of those older teams. I've even gone back and watched a lot of games of these George Carl books teams from around that time. And there's just something about it. I just can't just can't put my finger on. I just don't know. The team feels strange to me. It feels like a team that did come out of nowhere and kind of would have naturally petered off pretty quickly anyway, because like you mentioned Jordan, the Anthony Mason trade and how that was kind of supposed to be this thing that's really going to help. And it just, you know, didn't do anything. I think this group was one where if you're getting into the business of making trades to kind of fortify things, I'm not sure they were ever just one piece away. Like it's yeah. not the most convincing depth ever. This is a super top heavy steam team whose stars were good enough that they could almost have carried you to the finals, to a championship. They almost did, but it's those layers below that were weaker than they were in previous books teams. And I think that's ultimately where they were found out. Would both of you agree with that? 100%. Yeah. 
Yes, but the uniforms were stronger than ever. Uh, we're not <laughs> getting stop into those. those deer head uniforms. Bring them back. Yeah, well, they were they were somewhat iconic later too because you did have the. I don't. I don't know how people try to feel like about these ones. Right around this time, they did also go to. I suppose it was probably just after. You know the kind of. Straight, the green panels. The straight purple ones with the green panels. Yeah. I'm not mm. a fan of those. I like the I like the They're very nineties. The you know, I think the I, I'm not against the purple, but I do think, as Ty mentioned, the deer head they the primarily the, green elements of purple. I think I that's the best use of purple. Purple is almost an accent color. So you like you like the less purple earlier. Purple is an accent color. Purple is an accent color. So Adam's not in on purple as like the primary team color. Right. Thinks it's too garish. Is it garish? Like the later versions? No, it's garish. It's garish. I I don't like when they made it the central point of the jerseys. They still had had all purple jerseys though. Yeah, but it wasn't wasn't quite as... they, They made it much plainer as time went on. And the the kind of really what I'm saying because they did they did have those road I suppose they did have the road purple shirts at that time as well the alternates with the touch of purple was always the better way for me the deer head alternates I also if I was to specify between the purples you'd probably be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this but if I was to go for one of the blocks of purple I preferred the earlier one which I believe yes. was a little darker yes. They went the lighter color, which really, you know, no. I'm, I'm it, but it, it, the other one was was King's purple, essentially, right? Yeah, that's the thing. I like that color. If they kept that through, the, the they switched the colors of the purple, and they added those the side panels with the green. Like it, it got really busy for me because I like the earlier versions of it, even though they are more sparse, and I like a little more. I mean, this is a, a great edition of uh, <laughs> aesthetic talk on when it's six, but uh, I, I I can't even finish my point. I, <laughs> so is what we're saying is they didn't win a championship because after the 2001 season, they put those green panels in. Is that your answer, George? Not only did they meddle with the roster, they meddled with their with the jerseys. They, they meddled too much. Here's a question. Yeah. If the Bucks had built that dynasty in the 70s and then continued to stay good in the 80s, I wonder if they would have pulled like uh, Lakers and Celtics and just kept the same jerseys forever. I think there's an it, like there's a profound beauty to having the same jerseys all the time. Like absolutely, even, and even I think those, dated, like, those, those original books jerseys would have aged well enough that if they yeah. hadn't decided to do that, they could have just done it. And no one would say anything. I think so too. And I like there were some good jerseys introduced over the years. You know, I like the ones now, but. Like I just think the history behind having a jersey, like the the Lakers and Celtics, are still two of my favorite jerseys, and the Bulls too. And that's an example of, you know, like they they haven't had those for like ninety years, like the Lakers or whatever. But still, it's like it's iconic, and they they just know, like they know that they they found their winner, and it happened to be during Jordan, so they can always go back and say, look, we're not changing it. I also think it's like I don't think you can do that if you suck. I think I think it's interesting. We're really we're lost in the jersey stuff here, but it's it's no, interesting. I think it's, I think it's part of the history. It's interesting just how bad the last pre uh, pre rebrand oh, and redesign set of jerseys were. 
to completely turn everyone against the green and red. Just as a color set, obviously the red jersey was its own thing. I actually don't think the red jersey was quite as bad, but it was just, it was part of an overall progression of, okay, we've moved to the point of no return and what we're doing with this stuff. Like, there is nothing wrong. Like, I, I, if, I, if you're saying to me, uh, should red be a part of this color scheme or should purple? That's a no brainer. Sorry, purple people. It's red. You know, purple, purple people eaters, we eat it up. That is that is a book's color. It's red. I, I feel it's almost wrong that it's not involved in the jersey color scheme right now. I don't know. It, show, lost, it shows they really did a bad job with those last ones. To the turn the last rebrand was a misstep. They lost its privilege. Just say it. <laughs> we move back to the present day for a moment. Yeah, painfully, yeah. What year is it, Jordan? Let's talk about the events of the past week. Uh, I guess very briefly, as, as in we won't have a whole lot to say about it other than probably, yeah, it's cool. I'm excited for it. Um, the books did announce that the Mecha game would take place, uh, I can't remember the exact day, October 26th, I think, mm-hmm. uh, against the Boston Celtics. Revealed the... The jerseys, which there was a lot of people kind of speculating the day before, I was kind of like, we already know that this is being reported. It was just a matter of whether it was the home or road jersey. I would have gone road, they went home, but then they unveiled it, and you look at it, and you're like, it's a thing of beauty. It really doesn't matter. Um, they went with the slightly modified version of the original uniforms. Are we excited for that night? It's also, that's a TNT game, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And I don't know early. how I feel about that. It's so early. That's what I'm not sure about that either. I, I thought the TNT week... thing was weird because there's two two elements to that. One, okay, you want to get the most exposure possible for this really cool thing you're doing. I understand that. The other part of that though is, I want to hear a books broadcast call that game. I wonder if they could get like like could they get Marcus on there? Could they maybe get Brian Anderson to call it? Well, see, if Marcus is on there, I'd be worried that could be a players only thing or something and we're oh, dicing with danger on some other potential people if that's still a thing i mean like gus is a, a national guy like maybe gus and like sneak marcus yeah. on there is that I mean, possible i don't know i how don't think works. gus can work for turner i take a guess oh i see the other one hey, oh, so kind of out for marvin albert <laughs> i've no against marvin albert uh, i just isn't this like you're doing this whole occasion I mean, now maybe uh, maybe Fox Sports Wisconsin will also pick it up, but that's yeah, that could be cool. That's rare early in the season for national TV games. I would just like to think that I'd be able to watch this game and hear. You almost want a tree man boot. You probably this is a game for Pashki, but then to have Marcus Johnson and Johnny Mac both having played there, oh. both having been that part of the history. I think like something or like Gus that Johnson, is Johnny Mac and Marcus. Oh man. I, th- I think there's something really kind of special to that there too. I would be a little disappointed if we're just stuck with a national broadcast because it's all going to be very surface level. Even if they got some kind of old books faces in to talk during it, which I've no doubt there'll be plenty in attendance. Um, it's it just won't Almost be the same as... <laughs> it won't be the same as if you have Marcus or Johnny Mac on the call throughout just full with stories of what it was like to play in this place and how those great books teams did. But I'm overall, gonna be so frustrated if we get Reggie Miller. Oh, 
God. If they give Reggie Miller for that, I mean, just there's no justice in the world. See, this is the this Mika. Is, we talked about this. Did we talk? We talked about this recently. I know we have in some form, and we we still like when the schedule comes out, we still react like, "Oh, look at these these national TV games at the Bucks screen. This is so great." And yeah, I saw I'd, a couple. I'd rather I'd rather no national TV games personally. I, I'm happy to. Yeah. Have eighty-two games. No, 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 no. You're not thinking of awards. Like you need those for. I don't Giannis. care about awards. No one's giving me an award for watching the national TV. <laughs> no, but like, like Giannis. Like, if no one knows about Giannis, even if he's this good, he's not second. Sterling Brown working the year campaign. It's gonna be real people. Uh, you but don't get it started. Need... Get it started. The one thing I'll say on that is you don't need that for Giannis, and the proof of that is his um his buzzer beater against the Knicks at the Garden. Because the clip that went viral from that is the Gus Johnson call. That's what you get Gus Johnson in. So your YouTube clips can go viral and people don't even... They don't differentiate from it being national TV or not. I I don't know. I still think the teams that never get national, like no one... Like I, I feel like most NBA fans don't know the Hornets exist. Do the Hornets exist? Ask Andrew Snyder. Does Andrew Snyder exist? Hmm. Not Moving much on such deep existential questions. Um, this is where like, we've got to be happy overall with this, though. They picked it, should have been Celtics or Sixers, probably. Um, Celtics, Celtics transcend both of the great books teams through that time as being a rival, so that makes the most sense. Uh, so far, it seems like everything's gone right with this. Would you agree? I wouldn't have been mad at Wizards either, but yeah, it's cool. It would have been cool if Jabari could play because, like I mentioned this, he's a throwback player. He'd look perfect in a throwback uniform. But, I mean, they'd have to wait until, like, the latter end of the year. I don't think they wanted to do that. And there's still, like, you don't know exactly when he's going to be back. So it makes sense to just kind of do it now. Yeah, it's it's going to be a fun night. Jordan's made some promises that I'll I'll unveil closer to the time maybe. But he's, he said something. Oh, I already said it. Oh, have you? Okay. Well, Jordan has pledged that he's going to do the whole – Maybe we'll have to do an emergency one for that one. Uh, but the whole win and six around that in an old-timey radio voice. Oh, my. I already do it by myself, so uh, <laughs> this is going to be a piece of cake. Regular listeners know Jordan Tresky never breaks promises, so there's no chance of you being disappointed. Oh, man. I'm still waiting for what, – what, are we still waiting for the deli pick? Is that The, still the deli pick. There's so many things. So many things. Um one listener is lucky that they they got Lady in the Water, you know. <laughs> <laughs> moving oh, on, moving on. Let's talk about the the biggest piece of news uh, from the week. Oh. Let's keep it short, Ty. Um, Spencer Hawes was waived and stretched by the books in a move designed to avoid the luxury tax this year, and a move that has subsequently opened up a roster spot. First of all, thoughts on Spencer Hall's leaving. Um, one, in a general sense, on that decision. And two, as a player, are the books really missing out on anything or losing anything by losing Spencer Hall's? Bad time. defense. <laughs> bad <laughs> defense. They're losing uh, bad defense, okay. Yeah, a couple, like three games in an 82-game season where he makes like four threes and we all get excited and tweet hashtag Hawes game in these games that we play on Bucks Twitter to try to distract ourselves from all the things that the, the Nihilist Bucks account tweets. Um, don't, don't plug that account on here. I think I got the order of the words <laughs> wrong, so it's fine. Um, 
but no, in a basket. I mean, it's like the fun, like Jason Kidd will randomly decide that someone who never plays is going to play in a week. And like we lost a couple random spurts of Hawes when Henson should be getting third center minutes and just doesn't like stuff like that. But in a real tangible wins and losses sense, no. As I wrote in a piece, I think about I think I wrote one about Hawes and one about Henson. Like the Bucks have four centers and you only need three at the max. So it's no, you don't lose anything by not having a fourth center in 2017. I agree. I'm just getting the part about it is we're losing our our fun, I guess, meme, quote unquote meme, uh part yeah. of this whole thing. Yeah. We're losing all this. We lost Beasley, we lost Hawes. Greg Monroe's like photogenic smile in every setting. We, that's all we have. And obviously, we obviously have Giannis. He's in a precarious position. You know? I know. Oh, don't, let's not even let's not even go there. You said keep it short. Let's not let's not get into Greg Monroe trade rumors. For the, I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying he's in a precarious position. I wasn't he likes talking, the college. Talk about trade rumors. I mean, he's a free agent next summer, so Jordan may not have that one for much longer. We're really betting on DJ Wilson's hairstyle being coming, being different like every week. The books are really betting on DJ Wilson being able to play this year in a couple of ways. Uh, but that's for another day. The one thing I do want to say on this, I, I know Ty and I have spoken about it privately. The one, the one way I'm kind of disagreeing with a lot of this is I think a big part of the criticism comes from having to do this to begin with. It's not the first time I felt this way about something, but the mistakes that led to this point have happened. You can't change them. They're gone. Like I can't kind of I can't look back and say, well, if you've managed this better two years ago, you're not in this position. When the decision is made, you've got to consider the decision in regard to what their other options were. And I think the only other option really was. You have two options. One, make a trade. I'm guessing they tried that all summer, and unsurprisingly, yeah. they don't have players that anyone else would want that they would want to trade. That's not a surprise. Second option, just pay the tax. So everyone says, just pay the tax. A couple of things with that. One, it's not our money, <laughs> so it's easier said than done. Okay, not a large tax bill, but... The Bucks aren't escaping this kind of squeeze they're in, in a salary cap sense. Like, this could eventually end up in a repeater tax situation down the line. And so the re- be, It would take ridiculous financial juggling for it to not end up there. Right. And so this, you know, I'll oh, just pay it this year. You know, it's not a big bill this year. That matters because you, you're going to welcome the big bill. You're going to bring the big bill upon yourself so much quicker by just being like, oh, you know, let's just not stretch Spencer Hawes and do that. So I, I understand the frustration on everything that brought us to this point, but like you can't change that. That's done. The people who made those decisions are, for the most part, gone even. Like it's... It's really it's something that's so old at this point that we're digging up unnecessary stuff to really get upset about it. I don't know what other option they had. I don't love it, but I can't hate it because I can't find a better option. The better option is, I'll just trade him. Well, no one would want him. No one wants Henson. There's no easy way to avoid it. Uh, the other thing, which I don't think has been mentioned a whole lot, but is worth noting, 
stretching Hawes is a lot better than if they would have had to stretch Miles Plumley at some point, or just deal with Miles Plumley being around on top of John Henson. So as a cost for Miles Plumley's contract getting out of it, they essentially just had to deal with Roy Hibbert for ten days or so, and are now having to stretch the final year of Spencer Hawes. Not overly expensive contract for three years. It doesn't help them. They're going to be even more hard pressed when they didn't have wiggle room to begin with in terms of the cap, but there is a way where things could be worse. Again, I understand the counter-argument will be, well, don't play Miles Plumley that. The problem is they did. So there's no point when a mistake is being made then just harping on about the mistake forever. It's about finding some way to ease the burden. I think they've done that the best they can. It's not ideal, but it's something. Uh, I just like, like you said, like, don't like, don't make the mistake again is I think another valid strategy. And if you look at like the reason, one of the reasons, obviously there's many, many reasons that the Bucks have accumulated the salary they do for the season. But if were it not for a stretched contract, Larry Sanders is the Bucks would not be over the tax line right now. And I'm not saying go back and unstretch Larry or kind of different deal, but like, look how much that little amount can matter. Think about that. And then more than double the amount of dead cap they have for the next three seasons. It just like they, they have until February, whatever to make a trade. And you mentioned that they somehow got a Plumlee's deal. Like I would argue that like probably Hawes and Henson are both better than miles Plumlee. And someone was willing to take uh Plumlee for basically two contracts. Like I, I just feel like there was some like keep looking for things you have until February to figure out something anything else i mean pay someone a second round pick try something else i hate the idea of paying spencer hawes for this year and two more years now when like you said money is becoming going to get more and more dot not dire is the right word important as the years go on and if they do end up in the tax then this plumley money is going to be more than four million for the next two years it's going to be it's going to be one point something times and then eventually two times. I don't think the Plumlee money will still be there by the time they're at that point. But like, Hall's money. Yeah. Hall's money, yeah. What'd I say? Plumlee money. Plumlee. No, that's gone. Henson money will, will be will probably like two times at some point. But it's just like, this is not like, just look at why we're in the tax right now. I just said we are like on Bill Simmons. But look at why the Bucks are in the tax right now. Like if it's not for having this dead money that seems so inconsequential at the time, they're not there. Uh, you know, I think I think the thing with that though, Ty, is like take the Larry Sanders money out of it and immediately you didn't have to worry about this. And that wasn't their fault. Like yes, they, I'm not they literally had no option. No, I know. But I'm saying... Like I understand stretching money got them into this position, but that was that was one of the worst situations I've seen a franchise get left in in recent years. In that not only were they losing a player who was incredibly talented, still young, and they hoped would be some sort of central piece of whatever they were building next, they were having to pay out a massive chunk of his contract still. And he agreed to buy out. That's, let's not forget, Larry Sanders left a lot of money on the table. People can say, oh, as he should have. I mean, he just walked out of the team. That's fine. He didn't have to, and he did. But the point with that is, you know, they had no control over that. And if that situation hadn't come about, you know, if, if they hadn't got to worry about that, 
extra chunk of money well then they're not worrying about this to begin with it's not like it's not like that was another bad mistake to pile on top top of this one that's bringing it to there i think the i i agree look the dead money is is a problem and it's not ideal i wouldn't wait any longer on making a plumney deal the second someone was willing to take that deal and give you like no matter what you say okay it's, it's you're gonna now carry money for three years one when they made that deal the books also had a chance that halls would opt out which look he could have opted out uh, if the market hadn't been much worse than it was uh this year and his agent probably sensed that in advance he could easily have opted out and then you're not worrying about any of it so in making the trade they were looking at a trade for two guys who may have been completely off their off their cap within three months for miles plumley you don't you don't wait around you don't wait around till yeah. the summer till anything because then it could be okay and it would be look at it now you can't move henson so you'd be moving plumley with multiple picks multiple picks well, yeah of course the plumley deal was great i just like I just think like you can't just like be like, well, it would have been so much more. It's like the same as looking in the past at a bad thing and blaming it. I don't think you should look back and say, oh, I mean, it was great they didn't have to pay all this, or so it doesn't matter how they handled this, how the Hawes thing. No, but that, like, that is how Hawes is here in the first place. It's not, yeah, but, it's I mean, not like say... digging up one mistake after the other. That is literally like the only reason he's here for them to stretch the money is because they, they had to do something to fix the plumbing situation. And because if, they paid plumbly, and I mean, I don't, if you if you yeah, shouldn't, that's, if you, that's if you the shouldn't mistake. Look back at but, the bad thing, you shouldn't look back at the good thing either. It's like you're just here now. It's just a neutral thing. Like he is here, you have to deal with it. I think there are better ways than making it cost money for the next three years. Is basically, what the is point. the better way? What is the solution? Wait, like, wait for wait for a trade. Trade someone. But there there are no trades he made. So what are you waiting for a trade and then you're making a panic trade? Because if you wait for a trade and you wait till the deadline, you're looking to make a trade that day, you have no leverage in any deal. You are looking to make a trade to avoid I mean, you would, you would theoretically think that is what happened last season when they were looking at this Miles Plumlee contract and he stopped playing basketball entirely at the time. I don't. But they still got out of it for almost nothing. Like, I don't think I don't it's the same, though. Try I don't. to do that again. You can sit on Plumlee's contract. It doesn't help you. It's, it's not good for you. But... If you come to the trade deadline and you need to make a trade to avoid the tax and you call up someone and say, oh, we'll offer you this for this, they'll be like, oh, you want to trade with us? Okay, we'll take an extra second round pick. Uh, we kind of like Sterling Brown. We'll take him as well. And we've got a deal. It's like you, you just, when you're literally, okay, we've got 36 hours to avoid the tax and we don't want to pay it. That just, that's not going to amount to anything good. I think. I mean, they would have been paying If that's it the solution, that's one that's not. The owners aren't going to do that. They're going to say, "Okay, let's take the hit. We'll we'll deal with that now. Let's take that hit because we're not we're not worrying about paying the tax now. Because if we're going to pay the tax, we want it to be worthwhile and we want that to come, say, in the next couple of years when Jabari's extension is possibly or when maybe we bring like Greg Monroe, whatever way we're going to do it. As owners, you'd say, "Yeah, that's that's what we'll we'll take it from." So I I understand why they go that route. I. I see you saying that. I just think that's a very high stakes game and it's not one that I think they'd come out any better in. I mean, we'll see, I guess. I mean, this could all just look silly when they'd find a way to deal Henson later and they got dead money for no reason. Like, we'll see what happens. Like, you're right. I mean, they took the safe route sort of for this season, certainly. I mean, I don't know what a potential contract does to putting them back over the tax, 
Um, that's something where you could figure it out by looking at the numbers. I haven't done so yet, but I don't know. It just seems like it's a short-sighted thing to do, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see how much money this ends up costing them over the next two years when tax figures are applied to the, the Hawes sum of dead cash. Also, and I guess one last point on this, is if they had waited, let's not pretend that everyone then wouldn't have killed them for having to send the second round pick. Yeah, and that would be if they're getting away lightly. Uh, I mean, we, I've been... we've already seen the just complete insanity over second round picks in recent years. So if they did wait and they had to throw in a second round pick to to get rid of Hawes without the cost of that little bit extra, the conversation would entirely be focused around they could have just paid, they could have just had like just an extra 1.8 million a year. Extra couple of million a year, and instead they're giving away a second round pick. Second round picks become Norman Peltai. I mean, if you're talking to people off. who don't know basketball, then I don't. Yeah, I don't even. I don't even think it's like that. I think it's just you know, uh, <laughs> the world is a toxic place. It's the worst. I don't know if any of you noticed. Um, yeah, this is just how discourse works on things. So, from smart people, not so smart people alike, I feel that's the spot you'd end up in. And of course, all of that depends on how the books are doing. If the books are on course for a 60 win season, no one cares. No one would care. No one would care about anything. Uh, but any sort of signs of struggle, and then it's like they're giving up a second round pick. They not, have they not earned their mistakes on that? What sort of GM is John Horst? Uh, is Jason Kidd making decisions again? Just like we, we know we live through this cycle multiple times a year. Where's Rod Thorne? Where is Rod Thorne? I didn't want to even mention the man in the shadows. What happened to Craig Robinson? Yeah. (laughs) He took Michael Beasley with him. That's what happened. Let's move on (laughs) to the mailbag. I forgot about the mailbag. How could I forget? That's why we were trying to keep it short on Hawes. Well, you know. It's a big deal. The first one from at Dukes MCH. Ooh. Do you feel like more of your time is spent trying to be a voice of reason amongst books Twitter now than in the past? No, I bought into it. Hashtag Kyrie to MKE. Let's get rowdy. Oh. Ty Windish does not speak for the Winning Six podcast. <laughs> no, I speak for my own podcast called Time Out with Ty. Yeah, he does. That's true. Always. Regularly. Constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jordan? I would not describe myself as a voice of reason. <laughs> if anything, it's probably the opposite. It's of unreason, of whatever suits my fancy. Um, You're a voice would, of remedy more than reason. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, because, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess it, I, I do agree that it, things are more pressured. And that makes sense because we're entering. The stakes are getting a little higher. Tick tock. Yeah. And we're not talking about a cash to song. I'm still still mad about that, by the way. I'm still mad about that. We're not not getting lost on that one. Not not even (laughs) even that. Like, I wrote basically the same thing, but much less dramatic and fear mongery, like the same day, like two hours before, and nobody paid attention to my thing. The same thing thing happened this week at a certain site about a certain thing and oh, I don't yeah, think anybody noticed so it's okay, nobody noticed loyalty, um, no, not even that but oh. anyway uh, 
I would say that my answer would be yes, if I was that way inclined. But the idea of having to spend more time arguing with people over things that just shouldn't need to be argued, in fact, makes me withdraw. So I spend less time trying to be a voice of reason because I have no interest in having to try to be a voice of reason. I'm just here on Twitter like everyone else. Um, do we occasionally get things or get questions or comments that will lead to fierier discussion on the podcast, at least from me? Jordan rarely gets fiery. Um, yes, yes, that is that is definitely the case. But I, I don't feel it's our responsibility to actively push the voice of reason beyond kind of the confines of our own four walls. Um, if we, I will say, if we uh, use the, the house analogy for, say, this podcast or for our writing, um, obviously there are times where we'll write or we'll speak about things which are very much our own opinion and are speaking to bigger issues or topics of conversation with the fan base. But say, for example, the Kyrie Irving stuff, and not just the idea of Kyrie Irving on the team, but uh, the rumors that were constantly emerging to then be dismissed mm. almost instantly. And then they were being aggregated everywhere without, without any evidence of people being able to complete a very basic reading comprehension exercise, which is read an article, take the details from that, and use that in your article. The, the amount of just misinformation that went out around that from people not being able to read. And then wishful thinking as well. Uh, people trusting sources that necessarily that shouldn't necessarily have been trusted over other sources. And then when trustworthy sources come along, not paying attention to exactly what they're saying and just hearing it for what people wanted to hear it as. Basically, the whole thing was a nonsense and we didn't cover it like we would most other rumors. I say we. Um, I'm not necessarily speaking for Jordan. I'm speaking for Ty and I as, as editors of a site and probably even more specifically me as kind of the person who would normally be on duty during the day and be like, oh, books rumor, I'll pick that up. We're just, I guess, from that point of view, it's grading and we're not here just for stuff that isn't, that isn't pretty concrete. You know, it's not something that's, not going to stop everyone else from getting involved in it. I'm not going to agree with it, but I'm not going to stop everyone else. So no, I'm not going to push as a voice of reason on books, Twitter. That is way too much energy. That is the last thing I want to do with any day. Um, I sometimes do that during the season. I'll say something and I regret it instantly. But yeah, I mean, if I was that way inclined, it could be the case. I will say I do it for the salary cap now a lot more than I used to. Shouts out to certain personalities on Bucks Twitter wanting the team to offer Derrick Rose $20 million for a year when they're over the salary cap tax. Uh, that one's not happening, bud. So things like that that are literally impossible, I will – I mean, listen, there's a couple ways that that's literally impossible. But like, if it's like technically like they literally are not allowed by the league office to do it, then I will certainly be more of a voice of reason because I really – like I don't, I don't mind if you come at me on Twitter. I think in the abridged words of Amin El Hassan, 
your tears are like PEDs for me. Like, I don't care. Like, I've heard it all. It doesn't matter to me. So, shouts out to the Derrick Rose fans who wanted him to get $20 million when the Bucks could only sign him for like four. Bring me your hate. Yeah, my summer would have been better if I could have gone without knowing that Derrick Rose fans still exist. So, I'll say on that. Oh, oh, oh there's a hive. Uh, from at Pencil2292. I think I stepped on the hive at one point. Um, <laughs> if Jabari said yes to a four-year, $70 million contract, do the books push the go button? They better. I would say for sure. Four-year, $70 million is, what, 16 and a half per year? No, less. 15 More, per year. Seven, 17 and a half per year. Oh, no, I was thinking, yeah, 17. Still, definitely, for sure, yeah. Like, there are bad players making that amount of money. Like, I, I just think for that price, you'd probably have to do it. Jordan has I, always never, come in on the low side of this, so it's interesting to see if he has changed his tone. I remember uh, a little birdie wrote uh, <laughs> those numbers around that that uh, that range. I can't remember you, who it was. You, you quoted lower. No. No, 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 no. You, I swear we had this argument, Jordan, because I couldn't believe you. And I say you quoted lower. Being, being you, right? You uh, you never actually gave a specific number. No, I, I. You'd say things like you'd be like lower, and you'd be like, hmm. Hmm. You know? <laughs> I know I have my certain tactics, and but when it comes to Jabari questions, because obviously that was on the tip of everybody's tongue, quite literally, uh, they might have to go to the doctor to check out for to put it. But uh, I remember floating out. I believe I said four years, sixty million, and I went up. Two four years seventy million, could be wrong. People want to go back and listen, but that was I was in that Check general area. Check the I mean, like, exactly. Check the tape. He he could get like what like five years and one hundred and thirty. I think four yeah, years one hundred yeah. would be around Maybe. his max. So yeah, I think for sure. Like look at what Andrew Wiggins is gonna get, and then apply mm. it to a player who can shoot, and then like I just they like, not be able to run though. It's kind of a problem. I mean, I, maybe not, but that's the kind of gamble you have to take. Like uh, Glenn Taylor, if I'm John Horst, Rod Thorne, uh, Lazarus Eden's dining triumphant, and uh, uh, Jason Kidd, I have to include Jason Kidd. If I, I like Glenn Taylor, if I'm all six of those people at once, Jabari has to promise me that he's going to get better. Oh, yeah. If he... That's the only way we're going to oh get this deal done. That was the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, Andrew Wiggins was going to go up to someone who could pay him $130 million and be like, no. No. <laughs> I'm actually... My real name is Vernon Littlefoot from Ballers, and I'm just... I'm going to do nothing. Shout out to don't everyone bring, who watches Ballers. Don't bring Ballers. I watch Ballers, and I'm ashamed of it. It's the did, worst did show you see what I tweeted? Did you see what I tweeted about the Rock? Ballers? I didn't see what you tweeted, but it was about ballers. It's got to be bad. Ballers I said, is so bad, everyone. We all need to stop watching it. Dwayne, watch Johnson's, it Dwayne Johnson's performance in Ballers is like the greatest show of acting um, prowess of all time. It sounds like Adam is between a rock and a hard place when it comes to watching the sh- TV show Ballers. Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Um, I'm going to answer the question now. <laughs> I would probably say yes to that if I was in charge. Just for the record, I'm not. Um, do the books push the go button? I have no idea what the books do anymore. I mean... I don't know who this John Horse guy is. 
Uh, he does his interviews where he says nothing. Says a lot of nothing. I honestly, he's, he's smart for that. He's smart for that. No, he's not. I hated it. Hammond was really genuine and could say things without saying the wrong things. I think there's an art to actually being able to speak to the media, to your fan base at face value without being like, oh no, we're not gonna. Jabari, we're worried about his injury. We're not gonna offer him this year. Obviously, you don't say that, but there is a way of being of not lying to the media and your fans. I mean, you can bat away some questions, but then you can be... I don't know if we're ever going to hear kind of really solid, concrete stuff from John Horst. I hope so. Um, But the early interviews have been like media school polish 101. It's like he's he's taking daily PR classes right now. Uh, That's not actual fact. That's just just me guessing. Maybe he is. I don't know. Fake news. Um, from at NBA Crazy Stats, how does Jabari Parker fit into the book's long-term plans? Hmm. Well, listen, like... I hope he's around and good. If you it, look... If, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much more you can say than that, but I mean, like, if you look at the current primo dynasty, potentially in NBA history, over in Golden State right now, a four-year contract to an injury-prone player much under his market value is what sparked that. Not saying, just saying, like Steph signed for four years, forty-four million. Relying and on then, Jabari to become Steph. No, I'm not. Listen, not, not I'm even not, a time player, no, but no, relying on him to become an annual contract valuable. Go on, finish. I mean, yeah, I would think you would have to do that. I, I don't. I'm not saying he's going to be the best player on an all-time great team. What I'm saying is, if you can capture an asset for under market value for once, something the Bucks have not done lately like most of their players are paid or about to be paid that's the kind of thing that sets you up to do things like adding kevin durant which again bucks are not going to add kevin durant but having the room to add someone later on will be important and getting jabari at four years 70 instead of five years 130 is that kind of thing if the books bring back the deer alternates they might just add kevin durant it's not really anything out he's prepared to take discounts Um, from us Underscore Al Hopper. How many players off the original books team can y'all name? All right, let's do um, this. John Gary Rogers. Wayne Embry. Bob Love. Uh, Bob Weiss. Dick Cunningham. Yep. Greg Smith. Oh. Was it tough? Flynn? No. You could say Flynn. So Flynn Robinson was there in the first season. Yeah. That might be the list of it for me. I think I could if he be means the first. I mean, I, I just looked at it recently, but not a lot of the names are like, oh, look at that. You, you actually did an article last year, didn't you? If I remember correctly, on every. That was last year, I think. Um, on every player who played in the first ever game for the books. Yeah. But I don't. Again, it was like your memory is like a goldfish, though. Well, and it's not like these are guys where you're like, oh yeah, all these very noteworthy players who had luminary careers before and after. Um, McLaughlin, obviously, the most important in terms of like longevity and like to the Bucks franchise overall importance, I would say. I mean, maybe Robinson, if you look at being traded for the Big O later. But yeah, I mean, it was obviously they were an expansion team and they didn't get anyone who was like crazy, crazy good. Okay. So, mean, what do we get, like six or seven? No, we got more than that. Okay, before I pull it up, let's go through again. So, uh, John McLaughlin, Wayne Embry, 
Uh, Dick Cunningham. Oh, I've remembered another one. Len Chapel. Um, Guy Rogers. I, uh, yeah. Guy Rogers, Bob Weiss, Bob Love. Didn't they? Did they draft? Greg Smith. Did they draft their coach too? Or just the GM? They did, but I mean, that's not a player. So. Well, I get. I mean, he was on the first they team. They did draft Larry Costello. No, he wasn't on the yeah. first team ever. Wayne Embry was. Wayne Embry was actually a player on it. But like so. Yeah. I, get, I mean, it's an expansion, Jeff. Hey, like, hey, we've got eight. Okay. Not bad. <laughs> I mean, there's three of us, so not great either. But look, oh. how many would everyone else get? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say, come how, on now, like how many? Would I guarantee, else get? I guarantee, my dad is not gonna be out here like, oh yeah, I definitely remember watching Fred Hetzel. I, I challenge your Classic. dad. Too. I challenge your dad. I'll take your dad. Uh, okay, who do we? Oh, Zaid Abdul Aziz, Dave Gamby. Charlie Paul. Okay, so players Charlie we forgot. Paul Actually, we're very close because it wasn't a full roster. Uh, Rich Neiman. Of course. Don Smith. Yeah, classic. Sam Williams. Wait, where? Are they, they had 17 people stood up for them in the season. Total. Oh, didn't. Uh, he's not showing here, but I think, didn't they t- take uh, Charlie Polk and he was traded? He played 17 games for them that year. Okay, Charlie Polk too. Bob Warlick, Jay Miller, Legends, Dave Gamby, <laughs> Sam Williams. Is that a beer? No, Sam I already Williams? mentioned Williams. No, Sam something else is though. Samuel Sam Adams. Sam Adams. That's Sam Adams, one. yeah. One of your American beers. Anyway, uh, yeah, so there's some for you, Alex Hopper. Some, most. We did well, but not great. I think we did, I think we did pretty well. Just we failed record. that sporkle quiz. <laughs> Oh, God. I love Sporkle. Sporkle's great. From a Derek Playo. You ready for this, Jordan? <laughs> sure. I don't know if you are. Uh, will Jordan Tresky get a brain from the Wizard of Oz? I think he's insinuating you're the Scarecrow, which I've got problems with this. Which, most importantly, which of us, Adam, is the Tin Man? Which of us is the Cowardly Lion? Well, no, but see, we've got to we've got to cast Jordan right to begin with. Jordan is not the scarecrow; is incredibly confident, brash in his statement. Oh, I'm the scarecrow. Uh, yeah, yeah, you are. I suppose you need a brain. You're the tin uh, man, and Jordan is the tin man. I basically just need oil, right? That's a heart. Okay, yeah, okay, can't argue. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say, I think Jordan's more of the line because he's. He's sheepish in his predictions and his yeah. I think I think that's the way it all shakes out for sure. I would say Toto. <laughs> uh, no, just, your your dog is Toto. Vin is Toto. Vin is Toto. Who's Dorothy? I don't know, but yeah, I don't think Jordan is the Scarecrow. I think no. A Jordan on a particularly, you know, a. Uh, on a night where a role player drops 26 points, that's when he has the Scarecrow's charisma. Mm-hmm. But yeah. otherwise, he's more he's more lying in his demeanor. Yeah. I don't know if Jordan would be more or less insulted by that. I, I, I felt it was better than being called the Scarecrow, but I could be wrong. I'm Jordan? not insulted. Okay, that's, that's good. Okay. That's okay. good, Jordan, because the next question is specifically for you. 
Um, uh, I'm glad we're here for the Jordan Trusky hour. I feel, I feel like you can also answer this, Ty. I'm probably not qualified. Um, but seeing as people don't expect you here, it was... Put oh, up. this one. This one. From at David on 21, a question for Mr. Trusky. Are we A, Cream City, B, Brew City, C, Milltown, or D, a great place on a great lake. Before you Definitely answer, not that one. can I just, Definitely is, is D an actual thing? No, it's I, the, I, is that like the, is, is that a city thing? Like, a, slogan. It's it's like, like a, a tourism slogan. Yeah, yeah, it's a tourism slogan. Is I'm it? Sure. Um, I've seen it, I think. Let me Google it. I thought it was just like a throwaway option. <laughs> it sounds like fun. something that's on like a bus shelter from the Milwaukee Tourism Board or something. Hmm. I believe I've, I believe I voted in this poll. So yeah, it is uh, one of those options. And the option that I voted for long ago was Cream City. I like Cream City. See, I like I it just like of it's, the alliteration. I think it rolls off the tongue better. Yeah. But there's I'm one a fan of alliteration. There's one of those names that there's a variation of that I've seen used in plenty of places. And I know I have used it to refer to Milwaukee, although probably not for a long time. Um, I have used it before. Rather than Brew City, I think Brew City just feels wrong. I've seen Brew, Brew Town. Town. Brew yeah, Town, Town, to me, I, I, I like a lot. I would put Brew Town ahead of Brew City. Um, and then it's preference between Cream City and Brew Town. I mean, for me, someone who grew up in Milwaukee and often speaks about my city, um, we would more likely call it, if anything, besides just like Milwaukee, not Milltown, but The Mill. And okay. although counterintuitively, my favorite abbreviation is not M-I-L, it's, it's M-K-E. M-K-E is much better. Um, I really wish the Bucks would switch that. I don't know if that's like a real thing you can do with, I don't know if like you can do that minor of a rebrand, but I, I like M-K-E a lot better than M-I-L because it's not the mill, it's just mill, which sounds weird by itself. But if we're shortening it, like my friends and I, or when I'm speaking about it, I would say the mill, not I just like I don't know how often people like I, I guess in a sports setting like maybe Cream City, but I don't know otherwise. Like if you were talking about Milwaukee as a city, I don't know how many people are really saying like, "Oh, come to Cream City." I'm very much the outsider here. Uh, obviously, I don't know if anyone, don't know if anyone has given that away, but I would imagine I'm playing amateur psychologist here. I would imagine oh. that Cream City is probably the preference of a lot more people who live outside of milwaukee as the nickname for milwaukee so people who live in the state because i feel it it has a closer connection to the overall identity of the state as the dairy state and obviously you've got like the cheese head connotations and everything from the packers i, I think the cream city may be a more natural kind of carryover for people maybe live in state but not in milwaukee i could be completely wrong on that but to me from the outside it feels like something that maybe people in milwaukee itself might resent but for the rest of the state they like it because it kind of keeps a bit of their own in there i wouldn't I say like also, resent it, no it's I'm being also new nationalist yeah it's, it's newer it's like they're making it a thing yeah cream city clash yeah, yeah. um i mean look if it stakes go for them like i just feel like the Milwaukee part of the Milwaukee attitude is like 
we wouldn't be mad about Cream City because, like, wow, someone's talking about Milwaukee. That's cool. It doesn't happen all that often necessarily. Um, notice that the by far biggest Wisconsin professional sports team does not play in Milwaukee. So, sure, talk about the city, call it Cream City. That's cool. But I just think, like, the mill just, yeah, it's like how, how we would say it. Like, the mill. It's just simple. It's you know what it is. And I, it's maybe it sounds a little grittier, and that's why it's not, like, a very, like – but it's not like a great like PR type moniker, but that's just, yeah, I think that's the one where people in the city, maybe it's just younger people in the city would use it more. Like one thing I'm learning is like old school nicknames were like a lot different. Like they were way more involved. Like Wilt the Stilt. Like it was always, it always had to rhyme or be something crazy. Crazed Hummingbird, Billy McKinney. Yeah, it was, it was always something weird like that. And newer nicknames just seem a lot more like simple. You gave uh, Flynn, Flynn Robinson's one earlier. Yeah, yeah, electric eye. Um, the 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 guy, the best player on the Warriors team who sunk the Bucks back in the seventies. His nickname was Butterball because he looked like a fat version of somebody else, and his teammates started calling him Butterball. It was it was a lot more wild back then. Going a little bit closer to modern times, Big Paper Daddy, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Personal. I, mean, I guess favorite. like the the Greek freak might be like that though. Oh, I, I don't think anything's like Big Paper Daddy. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Effectively, though, what, what you're saying, what you're saying, Ty, is uh, maybe outside of Joel Embiid, as long as you're talking about Milwaukee, Milwaukee will be happy. Uh, definitely outside of Philadelphia in general, but yeah, yeah. We'll leave those battle lines drawn for another day. Don't worry, the day will come. From Metastic, more likely to start more games for the books. Jason Terry or. GP2. Terry. But Jordan, that's a crazy thing to say. Come on. He Terry. may he may not be on the team. I said Terry. Yeah. More likely to start more games for the books. Terry. Does he mean in the like in career or, or this season? <laughs> I, I think he means this season. Can I is like can I really say neither and have that be an option? Yeah, I think that there's probably zero starts between them unless there's injuries yeah. in a big way to Delhi. A catastrophe. A catastrophe. Uh also from Matastic, how long before Jason Terry is a book? I mean, we'll see. We're talking about how important these financial lines are, and that would get them back closer to the tax again. Yeah, and they'd be below it. They'd be below it. They would. They would it'd be closer though. Um, and also like what role is he gonna have if there's already six guards on the roster? I don't know. I've got That's a name that I don't know, maybe I I meant to say this in a more private setting. Uh but <laughs> I think I'm remembering this correctly and that there was some very tenuous link at some point in recent years. I feel like Rodney Stuckey's going to emerge in the mix. I was going to make a joke, but I feel like people didn't want to see that. But that was a name. I was like, oh, several teams are going to be... I feel the books will be one of those teams. He wasn't at the big free agent camp, was he? He would add to the nickname uh, Arsenal. No, he he wasn't, but he's seemingly making visits to multiple teams after Labor Day, which is... Uh, Rodney Stuckey needs a vacation, man. Right. Rodney Stuckey took some time off. Um, I'm I'm a low key Archie Goodwin fan, by the way. I would not be mad if Archie Goodwin was the guy. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. Jet is a lock. If it was me, I would probably. I think the overall Jet package is probably more valuable than a lot of what you'd get out of those guys. But they're clearly assessing their options. And now, I mean, who knows what they do? Because 
Gary Payton too still isn't guaranteed. So I've heard they... mixed things about if he's fully or not fully, if he's partially or not guaranteed. Like I'm pretty sure the vertical said partial guarantee or somebody did. There's uh, I think he's guaranteed I... true training camp, which is like standard. It's, so like, ju- it's like a January trigger date. Right. He, that's his oh, okay. full guarantee only kicks in then. But I don't even I'm not sure. Like I, I think if they want to wave him at the end of training camp, they could probably do that. I don't know, with nothing beyond that point. Could be wrong, but that was that was my read on it. Uh but yeah, I, again, I just have never seen concrete data on it. Who knows if the books uh do find I mean, potentially they could find multiple players and find ways to do that. Again, gonna be dicing with the cap, so gotta be careful though. From uh, Matty Ice to Ish, when will the Jason Terry statue of him egging on Kings fans be up in front of the new arena? Probably right the same time. Statue. Probably the same time Marcus Johnson's jersey gets retired. Um, oh, too soon. I'm, but also too late. I'm in support of both of those things, is really what I'm saying there. The, of the new statue and Marcus' jersey being retired. From my version after, of this, my, just one thing, my version of the statue would be him on the bench and doing his pointing the finger with his slide. I want the scorer's table. Scorer's table. Oh, yeah. really, that's that's, a, that's my iconic jet moment when he jumps on the scorer's moment. table. That's that that's the jet moment. Um, from uh, that was crazy. They lost that game. <laughs> Doesn't matter, Jordan. Don't t- don't sully it. I know. Didn't feel hey, like I, they were going to lose in that moment. Lastly, from at nihilist underscore books. Have we considered that the open roster spot just allows for worse decisions to be made? Feeding off of that, maybe. Um, they could also just be kept open for a while, too. I mean, it's not unheard of for teams to do that. Just saying. Leaves more levered, more easier room for trades to happen later and such things. So it could just be a roster spot. I mean, you look at now, basically teams have 17 of them, and you can have... I always get this wrong... Oh, 13 guys suit up, I think, on any given night. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 13 can be active. So you don't really need 15 in, unless there's an injury or something. So it wouldn't shock Which me they if they do it was... have an injury to begin with. So they would only have two. Yeah, they do. But it's to a, it's to a uh, position of great depth for them, which helps. Forward, I mean. Not really. Power power forward. I guess Be- Beasley's me, gone now. But give Mirza, me the depth. You've got Mirza and then you've got DJ Wilson. Mirza, Giannis, Chris Wilson, uh, Chris, Chris Wilson, Wilson. D- DJ Wilson, DJ Wilson. I don't know who Chris Wilson is. Um, DJ Wilson, Giannis, Mirza. So, I mean, Chris Middleton. Here's, here's the scenario: Giannis or Mirza miss like two games. DJ Wilson is your backup for having to play real minutes. Let's get it. Why not? Uh, I could give reasons, but we've got a podcast to finish. Yeah. That is it for us for this week. <laughs> I, I don't know what we'll be doing next week. This is a common team, I think, at the moment. Um, if there's one team that's going to unite all the individual teams of these history podcasts, it's that I'll finish each episode by saying, I don't know what we're going to do next week. What I do know is it'll be history-related. Um, not the coming week on site. The coming week on site will be Icons Week, but the week after that will be Cult Heroes Week. Maybe we'll do a Cult Heroes pod next week. I feel like that could just be Jordan talking just full blast for a couple of hours. That's right up his street. We might explore that option. Maybe we'll come up with something else. 
You'll have to come back next week to find out, though. Yeah. In the meantime, make sure to check out all of our history articles on BehindTheBookPass.com. Keep an eye on at Behind the Books, our Twitter feed tomorrow. I'll tweet out those two articles that I mentioned earlier. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Add us on Stitcher. And we'll be back with you next week. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ty. Whoops. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. There it is. <laughs>